One of the most discussed digital financial inclusion projects, M-PESA, facilitates the transfer of money and access to formal financial services by the mobile phone infrastructure and has grown at a phenomenal rate since its launch in 2007. In this episode of Between the Lines, Serena Nathalie discusses her book, The Exclusionary Politics of Digital Financial Inclusion, which critiques mobile money as part of a historical succession of finance solutions and puts forward a strategy for gender equality, arguing for a politics of redistribution to guide future digital financial inclusion projects. Interviewing Serena is IDS digital and technology researcher, Tony Roberts. Hi, Serena. Welcome to the IDS Between the Lines podcast. I have to say your book engrossed me from the very first page. It was great to get an update and some deep insight into the mobile money and digital financial inclusion story. I particularly liked how you located your study in the historical context of colonialism, the mainstream development project, and finance solutionism going back to microcredit. I think this book should really be compulsory reading for anyone who's interested in the role of mobile money and digital technologies in social justice, and also for anyone interested in the increasing role of the private sector finance in international development. In the book, you use a, a critical gender lens and post-coloniality to question the pervasive but problematic narrative of financial inclusion, both as it's included in the Sustainable Development Goals and more widely in the Mainstream Development Project. And you had the courage to take on not only the central project of philanthrocapitalism in the form of mobile money, but its very own poster child in the shape of Kenya's M-Pesa. So we're grateful to you for taking on these behemoths and holding power to account. So just to get the ball rolling, can I ask you what drew you to write about this subject in the first place? Thank you so much, Tony, for inviting me to discuss the insights of the book. So the project really started um, by discussing and thinking about South-South migration, the initial focus of the project was not financial inclusion. So I was uh, working for the United Nations at the time for a project on migration and development. And um, I wanted to investigate for my PhD the links of uh, the gender dynamics of South-South migration. So I started investigating a bit more and I uh, came across the M-Pesa project, this uh, mobile money project that was uh, so successful in Kenya because it was used by over 70% of the population in a very short time because it was launched in 2007 and uh, I started my PhD around 2011. So the, the book itself is based on my PhD project. So I came across M-Pesa by looking at South-South migration and I thought it was really interesting to contextualize the M-Pesa project within the broader political economy of development. So I started looking at the different institutional arrangements, part of the project. So as you explained in your intro, the different public-private relations, the involvement of the private sector, as well as the involvement of financial institutions and also NGOs and grassroots organizations. And um, 
I, uh, I wanted to use a gender lens because of my interest in gender relations, but also because M-Pesa, differently from previous financial inclusion projects, they don't really target women and they don't really pose particular obstacles to access for women. So I wanted to use gender as an analytical and methodological tool in order to better understand where inequality lies in society, as well as in the broader economic order. So, um, so that's the kind of focus I, I wanted to give to the project. Great. So, so what would you say were the main messages of the book? So I think the first message, as I said, is the importance of the context, the importance of looking at development by looking at the history or the half story, as I say in the book, to give a more kind of gender focus of colonialism and the importance of the intersections between the global and the local dynamics. Because I think in in a way is also a result of kind of global dynamics and global development policies. And also the, the local dynamics of the country itself. So this is very important. But a key uh, message, a key argument really developed in the book is that we need to be very careful with words uh, such as opportunity and inclusion, because these ideas of inclusion and opportunity can really hide structural inequality, can be used to reframe instead of challenging structural and other forms of gender, racial, socioeconomic inequality. So the key message is really that digital financial inclusion provides opportunities, but does not redistribute the necessary resources and the power necessary to take advantage of these opportunities. So this is a kind of key aspect of my analysis in the book. Great, thank you. Um, so before we come on to the critique, you said there that MPES is used by more than 70% of Kenyans. Can you just give us a bit of background about why it's so popular? Um, and tell us what the positive benefits that it delivers are. Yes, so what I found out in my research is that M-Pesa is very popular because it was integrated very easily with the everyday dynamics, everyday exchange, everyday business, everyday practices such as sending uh, remittances from the city to the rural areas, for instance, of making uh, a business transaction, both in the formal and in the informal sector. So the MPESA as an idea itself is actually grounded in a grassroots practice of exchanging prepaid their time. So uh, for instance, I need to pay you back for a coffee. I can send you the code of a mobile scratch card of the old style black and white mobile phones. And then you can either um, top up your phone to get credit through conversation, or you can sell or give the code in exchange for cash or any other product or service. So there was this kind of informal money transfer that there was formalized, institutionalized as a development project through a public-private uh, partnership between DFID, the UK Department for International Development, and Vodafone, which is of course a UK multinational telecommunication corporation. 
And uh, what is very relevant for the, in a way for the success of M-Pesa is that there was the involvement of many local institutions. So M-Pesa was actually developed on the ground by Safaricom, which is the local partner of Vodafone in Kenya. And Safaricom at the time of M-Pesa, when M-Pesa was developed in 2005-06 and then was launched in 2007, had uh, over 70% of the market. It's also important, I think, to say that Safaricom is uh, owned uh, by Vodafone for 40%. And this is an important dynamic, I think, that can be linked back um, to kind of the colonial legacy of some of the public-private relations. But what um, one of the main reasons why M-Pesa became so successful was uh, because it made transactions easier. So even sending money with limited transport or limited infrastructure, sending money to the rural areas was easier. Transferring money uh, in a very, when you have a banking system which is so expensive and there's lots of requirements, of course, uh, mobile money can provide an alternative in terms of more secure alternative to store money. If you, for instance, after a day of work, need to store money, you can store money in your MPSI wallet. So it was in a way much more accessible than the banking system. It was particularly at the time limiting for uh, many people at the lower end of the income distribution and also more secure than informal finance to some extent, providing a further kind of security in terms of more instruments as well. Great, thank you. Serena, there's, a, there's an intriguing paradox in your book's title. So the, the title is The Exclusionary Politics of Digital Financial Inclusion, Mobile Money and Gendered Wars. Can you tell us in, in what ways financial inclusion is exclusionary and what you mean by gendered wars? Yes, so um, the kind of paradox of uh, the exclusionary politics of digital financial inclusion can be applied in two ways. One is in terms of development. So the development project itself, as an inclusionary project, was built and framed around the exclusion of former colonial countries. So during colonialism, you had this kind of exclusionary logic that was applied because of course, colonial countries were considered those countries that could be um, exploited. Um, you know, without rights, not at the same level of the developed, uh, of the developed countries. I mean, the same idea of developed and developing is framed around um, this kind of progress and logic. So uh, the idea of inclusion being framed around the idea of exclusion was kind of grounded in the same development project. On the other hand, there is also the exclusionary politics of digital financial inclusion in gender terms. The development project in gender equality terms can be considered the kind of progressive inclusion of women in a system that was built around their exclusion. The introduction of norms such as wage economy, property rights was exclusionary in gender terms because were built around the idea of a male norm, of a male subject. So since the creation of the UN, um, Commission on the Status of Women, when there was the initial focus on gender equality and women in development, women have been progressively 
according to development policies, conditionally included in the development system. But this inclusion was grounded on their exclusion. So there was the kind of paradox that I see uh, and that I want to kind of discuss in terms of the, the book. And gender duals is, is the kind of argument, the key argument I make in the book, which is that although digital financial inclusion projects such as M-Pesa have been successful in increasing the number of women having access to financial services. So we can see this by looking at numbers, right? We have an increased number of women being able to access financial services through digital platforms, through mobile money, for instance. But then we don't consider the unequal gender rules and relations. So while women have more access to digital platforms, they are not provided with the instruments to actually take advantage of these platforms. And what this means is that um, there is an increase of unpaid labor, immaterial labor, that women need to employ in order to transform these opportunities of, ac of access to finance in improved livelihood, improved livelihood for themselves, for their communities, for their families, for their countries. And this is very much the logic that was introduced by the World Bank in 2006 of gender equality as smart economics that says that we need gender equality, not because gender equality is intrinsically important, but because it's good for development. So I wanted to think through this idea that even if you have means and you can improve your mobility and your autonomy through digital financial inclusion, there are these visible and invisible walls that you need to consider in gender terms. So although there are no clear obstacles in gender terms in order to access the system, then when we start looking at gender rules and relations and how they frame structural inequality, then we can understand all these points and aspects and which is really the aim of the book. So I just wanted to pick up on that because you, you explain clearly how this is built on an original exclusion of colonialism. You explained how um, in some ways it adds to exploit, women's exploitation because it adds more responsibilities. Um, and I just want to ask whether it also compounds the problem in that it prescribes the cause of the problem as the solution. So one of the, one conclusion that your analysis points to is that women's financial inclusion could actually be achieved, but at the same time, as strengthening colonial, patriarchal and finance capitalism that causes women's financial inclusion in the first place. And in that sense, the, the champions of financial inclusion seem to be focused on the symptom of gender inequality rather than its, its cause, and then misprescribe even more colonial patriarchal finance as if that were the remedy to women's financial inclusion. Is this how you see it? And if so, what should they actually be prescribing instead? 
Yeah, so I think this is also a problem of framing of uh, digital financial inclusion projects. So in my uh, research, uh, drawing very much on the work of many feminist postcolonial scholars, instead of asking the question that many digital financial inclusion and international development institutions ask, which is how, do we include more women in the financial system? My project asks why women are more excluded. And I think this framing is really important because if you assume that women are more excluded, which is partly true, but then you don't ask the reasons and you don't investigate the reasons for this, then you can develop projects such as mobile money that facilitate access to finance because at the end of the day, in a country with the informal economy, where you have a very high number of women working in um, the informal sector, uh, casual workers, or having informal businesses, having a digital financial system that would allow you to make payments more easily, or for casual workers to be paid by your employer on your mobile money e-wallet system can be convenient because you don't need to ask for cash, you don't need to carry cash. So if you look at the story only by saying, okay, this is an improvement comparing to the informal economy and this is the higher number of women. So if you kind of detach the project for the broader context, then you can consider it successful, right? But what I really wanted to do was to kind of interrogate a little bit more this success. And in order to do this, you cannot just ask the question of how to include more women in the financial system. You need to ask the question why women are more excluded and you automatically go back to those gender norms and relations, which are the idea of male breadwinner and other um, economic principles such as deflationary policies introduced with the structural adjustment programs, the over-reliance of the private sector invest instead of the public sector, and all those kind of systems that would create an over-reliance on women's work, what has been called in development um, theories, uh, for instance, the feminization of responsibility, that you increase the responsibility of the unpaid work of women. And this work is not considered, is not calculated, and is not rewarded. And this, this is very problematic because then you need to ask the question, who benefits from that amount of unpaid work? So that brings me nicely to my who benefits question. Um, so digital financial inclusion is sold as benefiting excluded women, especially in low income countries. But given your analysis, in your estimation, who benefits most from digital financial inclusion? So digital platforms and digital systems like M-Pesa can provide a small benefit in terms of a system that can be helpful, right? Um, there are, of course, the fact that the project developed so quickly is also because uh, people were finding it useful. So, of course, it was grounded in practices, but was also to some extent useful in order to make facilitate transactions. So there is a kind of a benefit in that term. But then we also need to ask the question, oh, who really benefits? And while people make 
um, a high number of very small transactions. For all these transactions, they pay a fee. And of course, the mobile network operator benefits from this fee. Now, what is very important in terms of the M-Pesa project is that um, M-Pesa is run in Kenya by Safaricom, which is the local partner of Vodafone, but Safaricom is owned for 40% by Vodafone. So, of course, Vodafone has a very high profit on, uh, on the system, as well as there is another 10%, which is, um, has been sold to uh, international investors. And again, the government has a very uh, small percentage of this. So um, I think it's important when we think about the question of who benefits, also to think about what kind of benefits are we talking about. So while people at the lower end of the income distribution can have a system that can facilitate their transactions, with their small amount of money, they are also contributing to create a wealth. And this wealth is not redistributed to them, to them who are those who actually have made the project successful. And, and I think this is a very important question that, that that's very much uh, the key argument I make about all this profit, the, the income, as well as the investment, even the money that have been invested by philanthropic organizations in order to develop, as we were mentioning before, projects on the top of the MPSA platform they have not really been redistributed to people at the lower end of the income distribution. And I think this is a key uh, point that needs to be uh, thought through in order to think about the benefit. Yeah, and those profits that are now in enormous, I mean, Safari comes the most profitable company in Kenya, but most of those profits now are leaving Kenya. They're coming to the UK company of Vodafone and to other international shareholders so in a way it's a kind of a link back to to colonialism now a, a digital form of colonialism yeah but um besides like some arguments on neocolonialism there is also the point that even within the kenyan society there are of course some people that are benefiting more from M-Pesa than others. And while the project itself was developed and uh, in a way sponsored as a project in order to uh, reduce poverty and uh, allow people at the lower end of the income distribution to benefit from financial inclusion, so actually they are not the ones who are really benefiting from this. So I think that's important to think about the framing of the project as well. Yeah, and that reminds me of th this kind of binary question. You've just said that, you know, not all people are benefiting equally, but the, the narrative of digital financial inclusion plays on these simple binaries of excluded and included, of the unbanked and the banked. Um, in your research, did you find these to be binary categories? Are included and banked people all equal? No, um, absolutely. I think it's, uh, the inclusion exclusion is uh, really to simplify the measurement of uh, development projects and, you know, according to indicators. And um, 
I think in a way it's very problematic for some of the reasons I was mentioning before, but this is also one of the reasons why I've been very careful in, um, in the book in using, for instance, people at the lower end of the income distribution instead of the unbanked. Uh, because I think um, the income distribution is so broad and uh, according to the income distribution you can also evaluate the kind of benefit that people can have and the kind of access to finance and how they can benefit from this and um, and of course it's much much more complex than that and um, but also of course as a feminist scholar uh, the idea of binary is uh, is very complex even in gender terms so something else that i found besides the kind of binary in exclusion and exclusion in terms of finance which is a very difficult to frame because some people might open a bank account through M-Pesa, facilitated by their M-Pesa account, but they might not use it. And the reason why they don't use it is that because they don't have a stable source of income. So they don't have a job, a wage, they don't have property, and so they don't really have money. <laughs> for to use the bank account. So that's a kind of key uh, reason for that. There are some people who prefer other methods, um, informal methods. Really, uh, it's, it's much, so much complex that inclusion exclusion simplifies this. But as I was saying, also in gender terms, um, the kind of exclusion inclusion of women is very binary on uh, kind of calculations, the number of women included and excluded. But gender relations are so much more complex. And they are complex at both at the local level and at the global level. Because you can think about, of course, at the local level, this kind of gender relations deriving from uh, structures, rules, and norms, but also at the global level, the fact that um, Kenyan feminists, for instance, have really struggled to find their voice in the international debates already in the 80s and in the 90s because they had different priorities from Western feminists, for instance. So thinking about binaries in inclusion exclusion is a kind of complex. It just does not provide the real picture of the yeah. situation. No, and I think the other reason that the funders and uh, governments like to use that binary is it, it creates the idea that once you have a bank, a mobile bank account, that that's the end of the problem. Now you're, you're equal. And as you said, it's perfectly possible to have the, the account, but have no money <laughs> to put in it. So you're, you're not any better off. So it kind of disguises the politics that lie behind it. So I wanted to ask you another kind of technology question as I'm myself a researcher of digital technology and development. And I'm interested in the fact that despite your strong critique of digital financial inclusion, you don't conclude that digital technology itself is the problem. And on the contrary, you actually see a positive potential role for digital financial services in furthering the agenda of gender equality and social justice. So can you expand a bit on that for us, please? Yes, so um, I think the um, way in which I framed the research questions in the book were very um, kind of grounded around the idea of financial inclusion. If uh, uh, I would have provided a um, history of uh, technology from colonialism to now, it would have, of course, been 
different in a way, right? Because of course, technology is also embedded in unequal gender, racial, socioeconomic relations. And, um, and I think we can see this in uh, a lot of current work that says that although uh, high uh, tech can seem very inclusive, then uh, is this actually um, framed and organized and developed around a lot of inequalities and the particular uh, racial inequalities or gender inequalities. So I think um, I didn't want to claim that technology is not embedded in this inequality. It is. I think what is um, in a way problematic in terms of digital financial inclusion is this kind of positive idea that digital technology can be a quick fix for very complex structural problems. So what digital technology does in finance is to create this kind of veil of optimism that can solve very complex problems. And this is problematic because um, limits the conversations, the critiques, the discussions on these structural inequalities, but also the funding. So all the funding go to technology without actually thinking, as I was saying before, why people, some people are more excluded and not how to include more people. So you have all the funding creating new platforms and not addressing the kind of income inequality or you know, a basic income for people. And this is extremely problematic, I think. I think that's a key problem with the uh, digital technology. My positive outlook on this is that um, I've seen in my work in Kenya, as well as in my work in Brazil, a lot of researchers trying to develop new projects to actually improve the uh, society on many different levels. So they are trying to think more creatively about technology. And I also think that society has changed so much. So when I think back about, as I was saying before, uh, the post-colonial time and the kind of dichotomy, again, between the structural adjustment and the new international economic order, society was very different, right? So we cannot really go back to the new international economic order as it was in the 70s. But we need to try to rethink that politics of redistribution through technology. So I think technology itself cannot really make any change in terms of social justice, but developing a politics of redistribution and using technology in order to implement this politics of redistribution, I think can be a way forward. And I'm thinking, for instance, about new projects on uh, universal basic income, unconditional universal basic income, and how technology can be used to this. But also you need this kind of policies both at the state and the international level because you also need to think about taxation for these big corporations in order to then redistribute the money so it really goes at many different levels but my positive thinking about technologies on the one hand about the really creative thinking of um many people who are trying to develop projects to help the community and at the same time in a kind of broader thinking is really to develop some redistributive policies that can be facilitated by technology. So finally I just wanted to ask you what you really wanted the takeaway from your book to be. If, if reading at the book can change one thing that we think about digital financial inclusion what would you want that to be? 
Yeah, so as I mentioned before, for sure I think digital financial inclusion projects should be developed around the question of why particular categories of people at the lower end of the income distribution are excluded and try to address those reasons instead of creating new systems to include more people. I think that's, that's the key point because then you can address many of the inequalities across gender, race, socioeconomic status. And, uh, and, and in relation to this, really thinking seriously about redistributive policies and how this can be developed through financial inclusion. Rina Natili, thank you for spending time with us at IDS Between the Lines. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening. If you like this, then please subscribe and share. Between the Lines is a monthly podcast published the first Wednesday of every month. It's brought to you by the Institute of Development Studies. Follow us on Twitter at IDS underscore UK or visit IDS.ac.uk.